All right, well, good morning, church. How's everyone this morning? All right. Did you bring your Bibles? Perfect. We're continuing through Genesis. We'll be covering a chapter and a half this morning. We're going to leave you right in the middle of a story. Not that you don't know how it turns out, but for those who may not know how it turns out, it's going to be a cliffhanger. You're going to have to come back next week. So just to catch you up with where we are, we'll be starting in Genesis 43 this morning, but just to catch you up with where we are, right? last week we read that Jacob sent his sons, all except Benjamin, so he sent 10 sons down to Egypt to get grain because they're in the middle of a famine. And we find out like next chapter or a couple chapters from now that the famine's been going on for two years. So they're about two years into the famine. And uh, so they have, Egypt has all the grain, so they have to send the sons down to Egypt to get grain. And when the sons get down there, of course, who is it that is administrating, you know, over everything and handing out all the grain and in charge of everything? Of course, Joseph is. But they don't know it's Joseph. They haven't seen Joseph in over 20 years. Joseph doesn't look the same anymore. Joseph looks Egyptian, as a matter of fact. He probably has his head shaved. He's wearing gold bracelets and chains and signet rings. And he looks like he's second in command of all of Egypt because he is second in command of all of Egypt. And so they don't even make the connection. They don't know it's Joseph. But Joseph, of course, knows it's them. He knows it's his brothers. He knows it's the ones who sold him into slavery over 20 years ago. They haven't changed much, right? They don't have a clue. They don't know there's Joseph. So Joseph's going to test them. And he accuses them. He starts testing them by accusing them of being spies. You guys are spies. You just came into land to see what we have. You're going to try and figure out how to take our stuff from us because we're the only place here that has all the grain, right? You're spies. He throws all the brothers into confinement. Basically, he throws them all into jail. But the brothers are like, no, 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 no. We're not spies, right? We're honest men. We're from the land of Canaan. We have 12 brothers, all from the same father. One of our brothers has passed away. That's their reference to Joseph because they actually think Joseph has died. And our youngest brother, Benjamin, is still back at home with, fa- with father. We're, we're honest. We swear, right? We're honest. So Joseph says, okay, well, if you want to prove your honesty to me, this is what you're going to have to do. I'm going to leave, one of you is going to stay behind. I'm going to take one of the brothers, and I'm going to put him in jail. I'm going to send all of you back home, and you go grab the youngest brother, your youngest brother, and you bring him back here to Egypt. And when you bring him back here to Egypt, that'll be proof to me of your honesty. Right? So go back home, right? Get little Benji. And bring him to me. I want to see my little brother. Of course, he didn't say it that way, obviously. Because he's not... He, remember, he was speaking to them in Egyptian with an interpreter who was speaking to them in Hebrew. They didn't even know he could understand what they're saying. They actually end up confessing what they did to them over 20 years ago in front of him without knowing that they were confessing it in front of their brother, right? So they agree. And so he binds up Simeon. He puts him in jail. The rest of the brothers head home, and what they didn't know was that Joseph had taken all their money and put it back in their sacks. So on the way home, they open up the sack to feed one of the animals. They find out, hey, all our money is back in the sacks. And instead of looking at this as a blessing, or instead of wondering, you know, like, Lord, uh, you know, in a positive way, Lord, what are you doing here? Man, are you blessing us by giving? They're like, the Lord's cursing us, right? This is a curse. What has God done to this? This is a curse. 
Why is God punishing us? But they know, they believe, the reason what they think is happening is because they're being punished by God. It's a reckoning, that's what uh, they call it. It's a reckoning, that's what Reuben says. It's a reckoning, and it's punishment for what they did over 20 years ago to their brother. God is punishing us for what we did over 20 years ago, right? This is punishment. And as I said last week, they wouldn't know a blessing if it bit them. They were so focused on their own guilt and shame, they couldn't see what the Lord was actually doing in their lives at that moment. God's always at work, even when we think he isn't. Even in those moments that we feel alone or that we feel left out or we feel alienated from everyone else around us. And we're, even in those moments when we may even cry out and say, God, what are you doing? Where are you? Why are you treating me this way? We have to understand that God is working in those moments. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't left you alone. He's working. What we should be saying is, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to, what what do I need to learn here? How are you trying to grow me here in this moment, right? God's always at work. Because God's word promises us that he's not going to leave us, that he's not going to forsake us. Romans 8 promises us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, right? But if you're in your relationship with the Lord right now, if you're feeling separated from God, if you feel like there's a little bit of a distance in your relationship with God, one of the reasons that may be is really, really, really simple. Sin. And that's what was affecting the brothers. They'd never repented about their sin. They had just covered it over. They had lied to the Father. They'd just been, you know, trying to forget about it basically for 20 some odd years now. They had never dealt with it at all. They have sin in their life that's never been dealt with. And the Lord is actually forcing them to deal with it right now. As soon as they stepped into Egypt the first time, and now that they're coming back to Egypt, as we'll read today, the second time the Lord is forcing them to deal with the sin that they've never dealt with. Right? It tells us in Isaiah 59.2 that your iniquities, your sin, have made a separation, or some translations say barrier, between you and God. That's what sin does in your life. And if you don't deal with it, though, that barrier continues to be built up. And your relationship with God suffers. In Ephesians 4, it tells us that right, you're alienated from a life of God because of your ignorance. Due to the hardness of your heart, which has to do with what? Sin. That's what sin does. It hardens your heart. It alienates you from a life with God. And over time, specifically over 20 years, you can imagine having not dealt with it, how that's just continued to built up and built up and built up and how that wall between the brothers and their relationship with the Lord had really, really, really separated them because they had just never dealt with it. They had just never repented. They had never asked for forgiveness. They had they'd just tried to put it under the carpet and hope. But we can see how the guilt and shame has affected their life, and also not just theirs, but of course their father, Jacob's, about the grief he's still feeling about the loss of his son over 20 years ago. He's still mourning and grieving the loss of his son. And their sin has affected their father's life as well. And they've never dealt with it. There was a book written in 1948. Maybe some of you remember it. It's called Ideas Have Consequences. Which stated back then, back in 1948, which is like, what, 75 years ago? It stated back 75 years ago that there was grounds at that time, back in 1948, there was grounds for declaring that modern man was a moral idiot. If modern man was a moral idiot back in 1948, what are they today? Right? 
It argued that moral absolutes didn't exist anymore. Right? What was going on with our world? We can't believe men are acting like this back in 1948. I mean, if it was ground for declaring that back in 1948, then today it's an absolute verified, unarguable truth. Man is a moral idiot. Right? Who thinks or believes that there are no consequences to their actions or to their sin. We can just do whatever we want. It doesn't matter. Everything's accepted. There are no consequences to what we do. We can get away with whatever we want to do. All right, do whatever you please. But this is what the brothers are coming to realize here is that you can't do that because your sin will be found out. Sooner or later, one way or another, even if you hide it from your entire family for all your life, one day you're going to stand before God and God's going to lay it all out for you. And you're going to realize, oh, wow, I didn't hide anything, did I? Right? Your sins will find you out no matter how far you bury them underground or how well you cover them up. And so what we're seeing here is the consequences of the sin. In the, and we're seeing it in the lives of their father Jacob. We're seeing it in their lives. Right? And God is using Joseph to bring the brothers to repentance so that they can be restored and that they can be revived, as it were. So let's read Genesis chapter 43 through 44, 13. I told you that when we get into these last chapters of Genesis here, we're going to be taking on at least a chapter and a half for the most part every Sunday just because of how the story unfolds. So starting in chapter 43, it says, Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? And they replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he was going to say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we now would have returned twice. That tells you how long they've been away. Verse 11, and then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them. And Benjamin, they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The men, the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money, which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. 
So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack and our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. And he replied, this is the steward. He said, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet and they had given their donkey's fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them, and they bowed down to him, bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. This is the prophecies being fulfilled over and over as the brothers continued to bow down to Joseph. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, Is this your younger, youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. And then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. And they served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination for the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. Chapter 44. And then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys, and they had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. And when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? For it be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of our, your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. And the steward said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Which isn't what they said, but that's what the... That's what the steward said. And then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these words, and I pray, Lord, that you just speak these words to us. I pray, Lord, that the message that you have for us today, that you speak to each of our hearts, and help us draw it, Lord, closer to you. We just thank you for this. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we read here, it's possibly, remember I said last week that the trip down to Egypt, some people say was a six-week round trip. So the brother says, we could have been there and back two times already, Dad, if you would have just let us take Benjamin. So it's possibly been 12 weeks. So that means it's possibly been three months at least since they've been to Egypt. And Simeon that whole time has just been in jail in Egypt. But now, of course, the grain is running out. 
And I don't know how much grain they brought back, but you assume they had one bag for each brother, so that's like 10 bags of grain. But they've gone, I mean, they got like 70 people they're feeding down there in the camp in Jacob's household, right? And so the grain is running out. But they haven't been able to go back because Jacob wouldn't, won't let Benjamin go. Now, when they first got back and they told Jacob this, he's like, no, absolutely not, right? You guys are evil. You've brought all this evil on me. Um, you're not taking my son, Benjamin. I'm not going to lose any more kids, you know, etc. Reuben even offered his own two sons as surety when they first got back. But that wasn't, you know, at the end of the last chapter, chapter 42. But he wouldn't have it. He won't do anything. And so, you know, Judah's telling him, listen, let's, if, if you would just let us go, we would have been there twice already. We would have taken care of this. This wouldn't be an issue, right? We're out of grain now. We have a lot of people to feed, but, but you won't let us go. We need to take Benjamin. I mean, don't you want, you know, Simeon out of jail? Don't you want your other son back? We got to get down there, right? So Judah basically offers himself. He says, listen, let this be on me. Right? Let this be on me. My reputation, my life is, is the pledge. If, if I go down there with Benjamin and I don't bring him back and, and I don't come back with everybody, then this will be on me for my life. Right? It's on me. I will be collateral for the loan of Benjamin. That's basically what he's say, saying. I am the collateral. So Jacob relents. Right? You see that in verse 11. If it must be so, he says. If there's no other way, Fine. And he still directs him what to do. Okay, take all this food, take extra money, take all this, right? Maybe it was an oversight that your money got put back in your sacks. Make sure you bring extra money so you can pay for the food that we need to get and also pay for the food that we got last time, etc. But Jacob's response, just so you understand, is still a response of unbelief. He's still mourning and suffering over the grief of the, grief of the loss of Joseph. So why do I say this? You know, like last week I said, Jacob, much like his father Isaac, had become spiritually blind. His grief and his despair has almost extinguished his faith. He's not proclaiming the promises of God as he learned them personally, right? I mean, he has such a testimony he can talk about. When he first met God, right, in Jacob's ladder, and the fact that he was surrounded by angels and that God was with him, and how God promised to see him through everything and be with him. And how God protected him while he was there with Laban and he made you know, all, all his flocks grow and not Laban. He has such a testimony to tell. But is he calling out to God now? No, he's not. His faith is almost gone. He's in such grief over the loss of his son. So he's not proclaiming the promises of God. He's, you know, he, he's not speaking from his experience. Instead, he feels like a man who, who feels like God's abandoned him. And at the end of, of his instructions in verse 14, and when he's speaking to his sons, he says, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved, right? That's how he ends his instruction. And in case you want to understand what he's saying or would have a little bit more understanding of how, um, he under, you know, how he's feeling, understand that that word in the Hebrew for bereaved, the word is shakol, and it means miscarriage. So, that's what Jacob is saying. I've lost my sons to a miscarriage. If, I am, if it's going to be this way, it's going to be this way. I've lost my sons. Right? So he's just incredibly grieving, right? And broken. 
So the brothers head off to Egypt. And to make a long story short, right, Joseph sees them coming. He tells his steward, set up the house for lunch. They're going to come dine with me, right? Invite them. And the brothers, of course, immediately feel guilty, right? Hey, second command over all of Egypt invited you to his house for lunch. Oh, no, <laughs> right? He knows we, we, what happened? He's going to kill us. He's going to put us in jail. He's going to do something, right? They feel guilty. They're in big trouble. So they tried to head off right, the trouble. They tried to head it off at the past. So they go to the house and they speak to the steward and they say, hey, listen, the whole problem we had last time, we're not sure how the money got back in our sacks. We brought extra money this time, right? Just so we can, you know, advanced word. Notice we, we've come to deal with things. Honestly, we don't know how all that happened. And the steward's like, I don't know what you're talking about either because we got our money and the money that was in your sacks, your God gave it to you. It was a blessing. And I told you, like I said, they didn't know a blessing if it bit them. Because they're so focused on their guilt and their shame, they can't see what the Lord's doing. And this steward, this Egyptian steward, who doesn't serve their God at all, says, your God, the God of your father, gave you that money. He put it in your sack. We got our money. What are you complaining about? We want you to come over here for, for lunch. We're not here to arrest you or throw you in jail. What? What's going on? And so then the steward brings out Simeon. Here you go. This is what we promised. Your brother could get out of jail if you came with your younger brother. But here's the question they should have been asking, which is how did the steward know they had their younger brother with them? He doesn't know Benjamin from any other person. They didn't say, here's our brother Benjamin. All right, where's his birth certificate? How can you prove this is your younger brother? Right? There's nothing like that. It's because, of course, Joseph knew and Joseph told the steward, but they're not asking that question, right? The steward confirms the money in their sack was a blessing from God. God's blessed you. They should have been thinking, okay, how did he know that we brought Benjamin? Who told him that we have Benjamin with us? And then, of course, think about this. They go into the house and they get it ready for Joseph and he arrives and they give him their gifts and then they sit down to eat and, and Joseph seats them from oldest to youngest. And they're still not going, how? It says they're amazed. They're like, wow, how did they know our ages? Right? But they're still not putting two and two together. They don't understand that there's something else going on here. They just don't quite get it. Right? How did they know? How did he know? Were they starting to suspect anything? Anyway, at the end of the chapter, it tells us that they were drank and that they drank and they were merry with them. Right? They had a meal and they had food and they were, they were, they were happy. They were at peace. They were joyful. Everything at this point was calm and good, right? But yet what they didn't know, and what I'm here to tell you is, is that it was false. It was a false joy. It was a false peace. It wasn't based on anything true. Right? Because why? Because they still had not dealt with their sin yet. Right? False joy and false peace is when we think we are right with God because our life has become easier and our problems seem less threatening than they did last week or the week before. Right? But that's just a perilous thought. It's Listen, it is one thing to be relieved. It is another thing entirely to be forgiven. There are two different things and don't confuse the two. They were relieved they were not forgiven. God was still dealing with them. 
right? Don't confuse the two. False confidence comes from a worldly security, right? I mean, you can have all the wealth and you can have a great retirement fund and all your bills paid off and a great view of the sunrise with your morning coffee, right? You can think that everything is safe and secure for years to come. You got it all planned out. And yet you've forgotten one thing, Jesus, right? You can have everything else. You can have all the awards and the honors and the accolades, but if you don't have Jesus, then the confidence you feel is a false confidence, right? It tells us in Matthew 16, 25, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, right? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And the answer, of course, is nothing, right? Let's look at the parable that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. It's the parable of the rich fool. It applies, right? So Jesus was teaching them the parable. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I mean, that was so plentiful. He didn't have enough room to store everything. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, I love that comment. I'm going to speak to my soul. And I'm going to tell my soul, soul, You have ample goods, right? Laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Right? You can't take them with you. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God, Jesus says. That applies. That that applies here because this is exactly what the brothers were doing. In this situation right here right now they were telling their soul soul all is good eat drink be merry he didn't want to kill us he's not going to throw us in jail he tells us that the that the money was in our sacks was a blessing from god all is good everything's great right we we have ample goods laid up for years soul relax they had a false confidence Right? They had a false peace. Right? Yeah, they weren't arrested. Yeah, they got to keep their money. Yeah, they had more grain. They were eating with the second command over all Egypt. He seemed to like them. He was personal. He asked about their father. He asked about their brother. He seemed to know their ages. Right? They were honored guests. What had they been worrying about? Right? What was all this fretting about? Oh, man, we didn't need to worry about any of this stuff. This is great. If only we had brought dad with us, he'd be having a great time. What was the point, right? I mean, they're going to leave Egypt in high spirits, probably singing little songs as they trot out on their camels with all the grain. Woo, right? Dad's going to be so happy. We're coming back with everyone. It's great, right? We made it through. Nothing bad happened. Happy, happy, joy, joy. What a day. This is fantastic. However, God is looking to test them still. He's looking to change their hearts. And he's doing a work through Joseph, right? He's guiding the hand of Joseph and he's doing it to bring them to their knees and to bring them to repentance and to humble themselves, to have them humble themselves before God, right? Because nothing short of humble repentance and confession will bring reconciliation with God or with each other, nothing. And that's what they need to do. And that's where we get to the silver cup. See, because once again, Joseph filled their bags full of grain, and then put all their money back in their sacks, and then in Benjamin's sack, took his special silver cup and placed it in Benjamin's sack. And then he let them go, right? Go on your way. 
And when they're just a short distance away from the town, he says to his steward, all right, now you go out there and you stop them and you say, how can you steal from my master? How, how, why have you repaid evil for good? Right? So that's what he does. He runs out there and he stops them and says, hey, how could you have repaid evil for good? How could you have stolen my master's cup after he did all this stuff for you? Right? And of course, they refuse to believe it. They're like, we didn't do that, which is actually a sign of the fact that their hearts and their character is changing because they're not blaming anyone. They're not blaming any brother. As a matter of fact, they're standing up and they're saying, none of us did this. None of us did this. Right? We're innocent. They are so confident. They're actually overconfident. They're so confident that they say, listen, if one of us did it, you should kill them and the rest of us will become your slaves. And the steward's reply is, all right, I agree. If one of you has done it, they will become a slave and the rest of you can go free. <laughs> he kind of changes it up on them because he's like, we're not going to murder anyone. But they were so confident, they were like, just kill whoever. It's none of us, right? So they start searching the sacks right? from the oldest to the youngest leaving them, I mean, they're probably sweating bullets the entire time as he's going through it, one at a time, methodically. And he gets to Benjamin sack. And by the time they get to Benjamin sack, probably the brothers thought they were free. Benjamin didn't steal the cup. We know this for certain. They've searched every other bag, and it's fine. We're, we're going to be on our way in just a matter of minutes. Everybody starts saddling up. This is great. And he opens up Benjamin's sack, and there's the silver cup. Right? A silver cup like this held great financial and religious spiritual value in Egypt. Right? The reaction of Joseph's brothers when they see the cup in his sack reveals that, that they understood the significance, not just of the cup, but of course, <laughs> wait a minute, what? Benjamin stole this cup. Right? I mean, they're shocked and grieved. They're incredibly distressed over what just happened. Verse 13 in chapter 44 tells us that they did what? They tore their clothes. I mean, that's a sign of, of grief when someone passes away, right? When you've lost a loved one, they just, they just, they're in mourning. They rip their clothes. Understand this. Joseph was sold for 20 shekels of silver. His brothers sold him for 20 shekels of silver. It's, it's no coincidence that Joseph used a silver cup in the bag of Benjamin, right, to test them. Will the brothers now forsake their brother Benjamin for silver as well? We'll have to find out next week. <laughs> Unless you already know. Right? But here's the thing about silver. Silver represents truth. It also speaks of refinement. Right? Psalm 12.6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in the furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Seven's the number of completion. Psalm 66.10 says, For you, O God, have tested us, you have tried us as silver is tried. So silver is this, is this idea of truth, because it's the Lord's words, it's like the Lord's words, and it's also this idea of refinement. So the Lord's testing the brothers, he's, and through the testing, he's looking to refine them, he's looking to purify them, he's looking to bring them to repentance. Right? And he's trying them as silver is tried. So all the joy and the peace that the brothers were experiencing just the night before, and probably that morning as they left Egypt, came falling down. Right? All their confidence is shattered. 
right? Why? Because it wasn't based on any true righteousness. All that joy and peace and happiness was just a mirage. It wasn't real. Listen, we talked about the fact that the brothers had this false belief that God was punishing them. There's a difference between punishment or condemnation and discipline. They're two separate entirely things. Two separate entire things, right? And the Bible tells us that, that God disciplines those he loves. Christ took all the punishment on the cross. This is why it's a false belief. It's a false belief for you to believe that God is punishing you or condemning you for your sins. That condemnation was taken by Jesus on the cross. Now God does discipline you. Absolutely. And sometimes that discipline is rather hard. Just like a father disciplines a child, right? We know how we've disciplined our kids. And as the kids get older, they're like, whatever, bring it on. But when they're younger, they're, when they're younger, they're like, why are you doing this to me? You hate me. No, we don't, right? So there's a, but there's a difference. So it's a false belief. It's a false belief that God punishes those he loves. But when you falsely believe that the trials and the troubles that you experience in life are condemnation from God as the brothers believed, this is what they believed. Then you also falsely believe that when the storms weaken, like I said, when the seas calm down, when the troubles seem distant, when the birds are singing your song in the morning, right? When all seems right with the world. It's also a false belief that, that now everything is right. That God's overlooked your sin. That everything you've been hiding under the rug and, and trying to you know, put behind you and you've never dealt with and you've never re- repented of and you've never done anything with, you're just hoping no one notices, that's continued to separate you from God and your relationship with God, that you think it's all right. Oh, it's all good now. It's all good now. I don't have to deal with that. It's all good now. It's like a Disney song out in my front yard. It's great, right? I don't need to deal with anything, right? When your sins haven't been found out and you think they never will be, you're like, it's okay. It's all right. But that's a false belief as well. That's false also. Why? Because true joy and true peace only comes from a foundation that is built on truth and it can never be based on lies. Right? The brothers have still not repented. And with that, they're building a foundation on sand. That's the foundation that they have with the Lord. They're building a foundation on sand. And when the rains come and the winds start blowing, as it tells us, right, it all came crashing down. Apart from righteousness, there can never be real peace. It's only a truce, right? It's only a fragile truce that can interrupt, that could erupt anytime like a volcano, right? That, I mean, this is how the world lived in the days of Noah and the days of Lot, right? They lived with a false confidence and a false sense of security, thinking that all was good and you can live as you please because there's no consequences, right? Moral absolutes don't exist. They just laughed at Noah. I don't know why you're building that ark. You're a crazy man right? It tells us in Luke 17, for example, just like it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. That's how they live their life. They live their life with this false sense of confidence and false sense of security, thinking all was right. Because there were no moral absolutes. 
man was just a moral idiot. He was living a life against God, against God's word. But, they, but the, as you continue to live a life against God and against God's word, and that barrier that you start building up with your sin just gets higher and higher. And you just get further separated from God and your heart just gets more and more hardened towards God. You don't think of it that way anymore. You just think, whatever, I can just continue to do whatever. All is good with the world. I'm a good person. But there are consequences. There are consequences to your sin. There are consequences. And the brothers thought their sins would never be found out. Yet they were. And now they're going to have to confront them. Right? Now they're going to have to respond. And we'll read about that next Sunday. But here's the truth. Here's what I want you to take with you. We've talked about it. Sin separates you from God. Right? As a matter of fact, the Bible uses stronger language because when we think of sin separating you from God, sometimes we can kind of be like, well, you know what? It's a separation. It's not that bad, right? I mean, I've been separated from my family before. I've been separated from, you know, things, whatever we can. But the Bible actually uses stronger language than that. It says that when you sin, you are enemies of God. That's a little stronger language than, oh, you're separated from God. You're an enemy of God. Now, do you want to be an enemy of God? Is this where you want to be? I don't recommend it, in case you're debating that. Well, should I? I don't know. No, I don't. I don't recommend it. But, here's, but the crux is, you know, I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And, and we understand that the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. Right? There is a price that has to be paid. The wages of sin is death. Right? So the answer is Jesus. Right? That's the answer. The answer is Jesus. He paid the wages of our sin for us. Right? He took our punishment for us. And if, for those in Jesus, for those who are in Christ, then Jesus promises, for example, in John 10, he says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Think of all the promises that are in that one little verse right there. Right? If you were in Christ, he says, you know my voice, you follow me. Right? I give you eternal life. You will never perish. No one will snatch you out of my hand. In other words, if you want true security, if you want true safety, where do you need to be? With Jesus. You need to be with Jesus. It's the only way you can get it. Because in any other situation, one, you don't get eternal life, and two, your situations can change, and you can be snatched out of that situation. But with Christ, you can't be. He says, no one will snatch you out of my hand. No one. Not one person, not one thing, nothing, right? So you need to be with Christ. But listen, if you are feeling punished, if you really truly feel that what you're going through in life right now, that some of the trials and the tribulations that you're going through are punishment or condemnation from God, then also remember this. 
right? Proverbs 3, 11 through 13. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of the reproof for the Lord reproves him who he loves as the father, the son in whom he delights. Remember, right? God disciplines, disciplines those he loves. And also Hebrews 12, 6, repeating pretty much Proverbs, right? It says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Listen, read that verse again. He disciplines those he loves and chastises whom he receives. What is that verse telling you? One, God loves you, right? If you feel that you're going through stuff right now and, and, and it's God's discipline, but you think it's so hard, you're pretty sure it's punishment instead, right? I know that God disciplines those he loves, but he doesn't know. You don't know what I'm going through right now. I don't, God's punishing me for something. No, he's disciplining you. And that means he loves you. That's the first thing that it says right there in that verse. He disciplines those he loves. So the first thing is God loves you. If God didn't love you, you wouldn't be disciplined. If you're being disciplined, God loves you. But the second thing it says that there is that he chastises those, right? He chastises those he receives. What does that mean? That means he's received you. You're with him. He has taken you into the family. He has adopted you in. You are a child of God. And because you're a child of God, he disciplines you. He chastises you. But he's doing that because he loves you. It's all about love. So if you're feeling that way, be reminded it's because God loves you and that he's received you. That should give you hope. That should give you encouragement. That shouldn't, you shouldn't be like, oh God, why are you doing this to me? You should be, thank you, Lord. That's what you should be doing. How, like I said, change your uh, thought process. What does this mean, Lord? How am I supposed to grow from this? What are you trying to teach me? Thank you for loving me, right? It means God loves you, right? Your discipline is for your growth, right? In the case of your sin, it's for correction. It's to refine you. It's to purify you. It's to mold you and to shape you. He delights in you. That's why he does this. He wants to see you grow. James 1, verses 2 to 4 tells us, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, let God work in you. He's trying to perfect you. It's called your sanctification, right? He's trying to make you perfect and complete. It's going to take your entire lifetime, quite frankly, and it's not, you're not going to be perfect until you're with Jesus. But continue to let him work. Don't stop him. Don't complain about it. Don't grumble. Understand that God loves you, right? Romans 5, 3 to 5 tells us somewhat the same thing. It says, but rejoice in your sufferings, knowing that suffering produces what? Endurance. And that endurance produces what? Character. And character produces what? Hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. So all through this, what do we have? We have hope. Everything that's given us is hope. Hope in Christ Jesus. If he's given you hope, then you have nothing to be freaked out about. Nothing to... Right? So if you've got sin you're dealing with in your life, deal with it. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to put it under the carpet. Bring it out. God already knows about it. He's trying to deal with it with you. Ask for forgiveness. Repent. Deal with it. So, but don't lose heart when you go through these types of things. Don't lose heart when you go through these trials and these, and these experiences because you have hope. Right? 
don't forget God is always at work. Right? And he is always with you no matter how you feel. No matter how you feel. Even when you feel that the discipline is severe. Right? And it feels like punishment. Condemnation. Listen, God is with you. He's working with you. Listen, Hebrews 7.25. I'll leave you with this one verse. I've thrown a lot of verses, but that's okay. You can keep up. Hebrews 7.25 right, says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Right? And as soon as I said that, I thought of the Beatles. Right? To the toppermost or the poppermost. Right? He is able to save you to the uttermost, which just means at all times. Okay? Those, he's able to save those who draw near to God through him through Christ, since he always lives. Some translations it says, since he lives forever, right? It means he's eternal, right? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is that telling you about your life in Christ? It says, basically what it's saying is this, as long as Jesus is alive, you can never be condemned. All right? As long as Jesus is alive, you can never be condemned if you are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, that doesn't apply to you, which should tell you where you want to be, right? In Christ. Don't be foolish, right? Don't lose your soul. Be in Greek. Christ, now is the time. If you're dealing with people over situations like this and they're wafering back and forth, you know, and oh, 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 like, no, now is the time, really. I mean, we can't make your decision for you, but don't be foolish. Now is the time to put your faith in Jesus. Right? Trust in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this. And I pray, Lord, that you just help us work this out. I pray you just continue to, to work this through our hearts and have your spirit guide us. I just thank you, Lord, for the fact that we are safe in Christ Jesus. And you discipline and chastise those who you love. And we all go through periods where we're dealing with sin in our lives. And sometimes we try to push it off and not deal with it. But you want to deal with it right then and there. So I pray, Lord, that we just continue to repent and ask for forgiveness and just to get up and move on and continue to grow in our walk with you and continue to let you shape and mold us and understand that what you do, you do because you love us and you want to see us grow and you want to see us refined. You want to see us holy as you are holy. So we thank you for that great love. We thank you how you work that out through us. We pray, Lord, that we can continue to be a light and continue to draw people to Jesus and point them to the truth that is found in God's word. We thank you for this, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.